probably a child who walked into the window and we knew that he was entering that impact zone. And when there's like seven seconds remaining, like I was literally thinking to myself, do we go ahead and kill this individual and accept the possibility that this child is going to die? Live with Detachment 075, telling the stories of air men and women worldwide. With your hosts, Daniel Black, Tanner Coleman, and Max Hagman. The views expressed here are those of the interviewee and do not necessarily represent those of the Department of Defense. Good afternoon, evening, or even morning if you're up that early uh, for the Debt 075 podcast. We're here with uh, co-host Daniel Black, uh, Cadet 3rd Class, uh, and we're also here with TACP Officer Captain Chris. That's what we want to refer to him as, as uh, the podcast keeps going. Thank you so much for everyone for listening this week. Um, we have a lot of good content planned ahead, and we're looking forward to this interview going uh, ahead. So, uh, Daniel, do you have anything to say before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. So, thank you, Captain Chris, for joining us on today. Captain Chris is a TACP officer, a tactical air control party officer. Uh, I don't think we've had a TACP on before, have we, Max? Uh, no, we haven't. It's a special guest here. Uh, I know a lot of people in the debt are interested in the TACP career field. And the fact that we will have one here on the podcast today is sure, certainly an honor and a privilege to have that today for everybody on the, uh, listening. Yeah, so definitely excited about that. I know we just had one cadet in the detachment get selected to go to phase two for the tactical air control party officer pipeline. Uh, so, you know, that's really exciting. Captain Chris, do you have anything you want to say to, to that cadet? Um, that got selected for that pipeline. Yeah, to the cadet that got invited to top T, so TACP officer phase two. Yeah, just be your most authentic self. Uh, be be the best version of yourself out there because the cadre out there, they're not looking for someone who's just a physical stud in every as- aspect of life, uh, but they really just want the right person uh, to get picked up for the job. So just, just be your best self. Now, even now that we have a cadet going through the pipeline, what what was your experience going through TACP school and what what got you through those experiences and what can you say or advice you have for that? I'd say um, even just to take a few steps back, like even before uh, TACP schoolhouse, like I had to go through TACP officer phase two as well. And I think what got me through that is just the teammates to my left and to my right and knowing that there wasn't really anything else in the Air Force that I wanted to do. Also, just knowing that I put months of training into that one event that provided me motivation to just put my my best foot forward in everything. And going into the Tacky Schoolhouse, which is like four and a half months long, I think what kept me motivated was, well, one, I I had already reported to my first duty station at Fort Carson. I, I bought a house in Colorado Springs before I even went to the schoolhouse. And I did not want to fail out of the schoolhouse after returning to Colorado Springs and sell a house that I literally just bought. Uh, so there was, that was my financial motivation to succeed there. But even um, aside from that, again, just teammates to the left and the right, and knowing that that was the only job I wanted at Air Force, uh, that kept me motivated. Colorado Springs, it sounds like you might have been an academy grad. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up moving about nine miles south of I-25 to Fort Carson. So I didn't, didn't move too far and decided to stick around for a bit. Gotcha, gotcha. So how was, you know, your experience in the, the academy? Did that influence your motivation at all? How many other cadets in the academy want to go for TACP? I think we had, I want to say somewhere between 14 and 16 for my class who wanted to go TACP. And then six of us ended up getting selected. Um, and at the time, it was a relatively new career field. And I think it had only been around for maybe three or four years prior to us trying out. So we didn't know a whole lot about the TAPI career field. Basically what we knew about it was from just stuff that we read online or TACPs that we talked to uh, down in Fort Carson, but we didn't know a whole lot about it. But I think even just having that crew, that good crew of cadets to train with, usually in the afternoons and evenings, that, that was a good environment for me to surround myself with and to get myself prepped for phase two. So, you know, you had those 14 to 16 cadets right there with you all training. They all wanted to go for the same exact goal, all training. That must've been a pretty powerful training environment. 
And, you know, when you went to, when you eventually went to phase two, did you have those friends, teammates, brothers out there with you or were you solo? Yep. So of all the cadets in my class that wanted to go out, only two of us were allowed to try out um, at my phase two, my top T. And that was because each of us only had, I think we were allowed to take a total of uh, two final exams at the end of that semester since phase two was uh, during finals week and the, the Dean of Cadets didn't want us to miss too many exams. So only two of us got to try out. Uh, thankfully, both of us made it. And then I believe the majority of the remainder of Cadets got to try out during the spring selection. Now, even backing up before then, uh, applying and getting accepted to the Air Force Academy is already an honor. Now, how since TACP was already a new career field going into the Air Force Academy, did you already hear about the TACP position or did, when you were going into the Air Force Academy, uh, you had no knowledge of it and you wanted to do something else? Like how, how did that academy aspiration go forward and how, how were you able to do that? Yeah, I think prior to getting in the academy, I guess I'd have to go a little bit into like why I wanted to go to the academy and why I wanted to join the Air Force in the first place. So I grew up as Air Force brat, my dad was in, he retired as a space missiles officer. And I think the, the idea of service, it, it attracted me, but more so than that, I just wanted to seek some adventure and surround myself with teammates who also wanted to live that life of consequentialism. So I think the military as a whole was, was an attractive lifestyle to me. And I, I got interested um, in the Air Force Academy when I, when I read about it in, I want to say, seventh or eighth grade. Kind of kept, kept that in the back of my head, made that kind of a long-term goal. And I'd say, like, getting – and when it comes to, like, how did I even get into TACP or how did I become interested in that career field, I think the first time I got exposed to any type of special warfare career field was in the summer of – it must have been 2006 or 2007, uh, but I was working at Chick-fil-A at the time. And I was like very dissatisfied with having to save my pleasure all the time. I was like, man, I hate this job. I really like the people I work with. I want to go do something else. I want to do something consequential. And then one of those nights I went out with my friends and we happened to go see the movie Transformers. And there's, there's that one scene where I think it's Tyrese Gibson's character where he's, uh, he's a JTAC and he's talking to A-10s and AC-130s, just calling in, uh, calling in some rage against the Decepticons. And I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. I did not know that that job, that type of job existed in the Air Force to begin with. Um, so that got me a little bit interested. And I'm not saying that that, mood, that scene in uh, Transformers was the impetus for me wanting to become a TACP. Like by far, that, that's not what motivated me. But that, that initially, um, it at least initiated my interest in the career field. After that, I eventually got to the academy. And during my freshman year, we met a cadet who was a prior enlisted TACP. And he had some pretty cool stories. Um, so I just did my research after that, started training, found a good group of dudes to surround myself with, and eventually went to phase two. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about how Top Gun motivated him. I think this is the first time I've ever heard someone talk about how the Transformers motivated them. But in your experience, has, you know, you always said you wanted to go for that adventure. You wanted to do something with consequence and, you know, take that role in your life? Have, have you found that adventure? Has it been, has this been the route for you? And, you know, how has it worked out since then? Yes, um, I have found that adventure, but it doesn't always come the way that I had expected it when I was 18 years old. Um, and I say that the problem sets I have found myself involved in have been vastly different from what I expected as a brand new 22 year old second lieutenant. So when, when I think about the adventure that I, that I was anticipating as a cadet, um, yeah, I, I got in my deployments, got a drop in combat, but I, I definitely have not done it as much as I had hoped I would have done it. I say the enlisted guys probably have like 10 times as much fun as I do as an officer. And a lot, a lot of that is because as an officer, like your, your main job is not necessarily to be the tip of the spear. Uh, your main job is not necessarily to be um, in the front lines all the time, but oftentimes your job is just to set those guys up for success and make sure that they're they're given the opportunity to kill the enemy. Um, so even just from procuring those opportunities for my guys or being able to help them out in garrison if they have something going on, that's a type of satisfaction and that's a type of adventure that I didn't anticipate, but it's left me pretty fulfilled. How is it um, being in one of the most elite groups in the military and dealing with special forces and enlisted uh, personnel who have to deal with high pressure situations 
and where, what type of leadership style or what, what have you grown and developed to be able to lead these guys efficiently on the battlefield? I'd say, and just to back up, I, I do want to clarify that TACP does not exclusively support the soft side or the special operations forces side of the house. The majority of us actually support a lot of the conventional side as well. So we get a lot of different flavors from the military that we get to integrate with. But to answer your question, like how, what, what is that experience like, especially when you're leading uh, when you're leading pretty motivated airmen? It really depends on, on what the situation is. And I think the leadership approach that I've taken, it varies depending on uh, who I'm dealing with, what they're capable of, and, and what the situation is. So I tend to divide up my leadership style between parenting style versus the partnership style. Um, so I might try to incorporate my parenting side of leadership if I'm working with someone who's relatively young and inexperienced and really needs someone to guide them along the way. And they would benefit uh, from a little bit of maybe some aggressive prodding. Whereas uh, I might use the partnership approach if I'm working with someone who's more of a peer, someone more experienced, or someone who is more receptive to feedback and correction if you treat them like a teammate and more of a partner and less of a child. Those are the main two uh, leadership styles that I try to use. So there's got to be a difference between, uh, so first of all, I'm not entirely familiar with the TACB community and, you know, their role, their mission. Uh, you know, before we get any further into the to the episode, I know we got to be confusing some people. Um, we definitely neglected the whole, what's a TACB? So uh, before we get any further into that, do you think you could run us down what the this career field is, what they do? And, um, you know, who the kind of the teamwork aspect of, so who would be the enlisted in your deployments? Yep. So that's a good question. So TACP is part of the Air Force Special Warfare Enterprise, which consists of Axis, Strike and Recovery. And uh, the TACP career field covers a preponderance of that strike capability within aspect war. Uh, but we go beyond that. It's not just about precision strike and control and close air support. We also do um, a lot of strike integration in C2. Uh, meaning that we're we're going to be setting up networks. We're going to make sure that there is some type of process in place to get the supported component, the effects it needs. We're also trying to expand our reach a little bit into JADC2, so Joint All Domain Command Control, where we're looking into not just effects from the air component, but effects from every single every single domain. And that, that's where I see ourselves making a big difference in the future. And that's not necessarily where we're at today, but that's the future of the TAPI career field. Gotcha, gotcha. So when, you know, when you say you go on these deployments, who are you deploying with? What makes a, a team? Who is your team? Yeah, so when we deploy, uh, the vast majority of our deployments are going to be aligned with an, armor, with an Army Brigade combat team. Um, so usually about 4,000 to 6,000 people. And we align ourselves at the Brigade and Regimental um, echelons um, down to battalion, squadron, and company, and the troop levels as well. So it really depends on, um, as an officer, it depends on where in your career field you're at. So if I, if I deploy as a young lieutenant, like straight out of MQT, I'm probably going to be a strike team leader. So I'll be in charge of about five to six people. And at least two to three of them are going to be very experienced JTACs. Their job as a strike team leader is to integrate air component effects into a battalion or squadron-sized element. Above that, if you're a captain and you're a flight commander, then you're integrating effects and you're advocating on behalf of the Air Force to a brigade or a regiment. How difficult is it to kind of mix in the two different branches where when you uh, deploy with an army brigade, um, having that kind of communication where is the training different between Air Force and Army? And is there kind of a little bit of a different kind of um, communication style that you have to go about with one another, the different branches? I mean, we, we all have our own uh, lingo. Army talks different, the Air Force talks different. And as a TACP and as, as a liaison officer within a staff, um, I've had to learn to, to become fluent in both languages. Sometimes I'm trying to translate Air Force concepts to my Army brethren. I'm trying to um, translate ground concepts to my Air Force brethren. So, yeah, just learning the, the differences and being able to translate between the two, um, that's always important in my position. As far as training goes, I, I do think that there are some there are some distinct differences between how the Army and how the Air Force train, and a lot of it is it's very much uh, based on some cultural differences. Whereas in the Air Force, the the best learning out of any training event always occurs during the debrief. 
That's where we're going to illuminate a lot of the mistakes, the contributing factors and root causes that led to those mistakes. And when you illuminate those problems, having a high rank doesn't necessarily excuse you from being criticized. We're going to point out your mistakes, but we did because we're going to make you better. That's an Air Force approach. Whereas in the Army, and not to, uh, yeah, not, not to degrade their approach, um, but I, I feel like a lot of Army training events and some major exercises are almost rubber stamps for some of the people that are being evaluated, and they're less likely to illuminate some of the some of the debrief focus points that should have been emerged. Right, got you. And yeah, Max, I was going to ask the same thing because I had some some reservations myself because you have to imagine that there's obviously specific ways that Air Force does something, Navy does something, Army does something, but I can also see how you know when you're in that combat close air support role that there's got to be universal, you know, mission training. So how has when, Captain Chris, how, when you were going to these areas to do training for close air support and all that, do you train with the rest of, you know, your team, everyone involved, or is there just a universal communication that goes on there? Yeah, so the vast majority of my training will be conducted with, with other airmen, and I say like big A airmen, and whether it's in the sim or we're doing a practical exercise at PEX, or we're going out on a TDY dedicated entirely to CAS, we, we typically train with other members of the, of the TAPI career field. And then when it comes to integrating with the Army and the rest of the joint force, we mainly do those in venues such as major exercises, whether it's a warfighter exercise, an NTC rotation, which is National Training Center or a joint readiness training center where we're focused on force on force fights and there are these mass movements of uh, armor and infantry units um, just engaging in simulated warfare. Um, th- those types of training events are where we get most of our integration with Army. We have trained in, in uh, combined coalition environments as well, just as spin-ups to some of the larger deployments that we have. But I guess in short, uh, most of our training is with other members of the TACI career field. And then we also integrate with our joint partners as well. I think it's so interesting how where, you know, we come from an ROTC background and we're going through this and uh, me and Daniel actually uh, were roommates or not roommates, but dorm mates in the same vicinity or the same floor as other ROTC units in Navy and Army. And to see their kind of uh, coming up to be second lieutenants in their branches and their different training, it's it's interesting to see a commissioned officer in the Air Force dealing with that kind of like synchronization of our militaries. And, and in the end, that's what it's all about is the Air Force has their job, the Army has their job, and the Navy has their job, but they're all doing the same mission and the same kind of synchronization, which is really interesting. But when you talk about uh, coalitions, is it you are you referring to like uh, other countries' militaries as well? Is that something that you work on? Yeah, so we've done exercises with, uh, with other countries, mostly the five I countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK. We've recently in, d- increased our participation in exercises that involve the French as well. French have been getting after it. They're trying to become very involved. They're trying to they're they're trying to demonstrate uh, the capabilities they, they can bring to the fight. So they're constantly involved in some of our major exercises as well. Um, I worked a lot with uh, the Korean military. Um, I was stationed over there for a little over a year, so I got to get exposed to that environment a little bit. But yeah, we we try to train with anyone who we could reasonably be expected to work with. In any contingency. Got you. And you mentioned you, you mentioned Korea. I am guessing you did a close air support training with them there. What was your favorite deployment? I'd say my favorite deployment was probably probably my last one, which was not very tactical at all. I was actually part of a, a joint task force staff. I was really just an action officer with a with a desktop um, in charge of uh, TPS reports and whatnot. I did get to go north a few times, and I did get to uh, do a little bit of controlling. But what made that deployment for me, uh, what made that deployment fulfilling for me, was the amount of influence I had. It came to uh, synchronizing all the targeting efforts that were going across AO, just being able to see the results of that. Even if I'm not the one like pulling the trigger, or not always the one who's saying clear hot on the mic, I I got a lot of fulfillment um, just from seeing the fruits of my labor. So even so, it's interesting when you say that that was your favorite deployment, because even when you said when you were the young 18 year old, the young eight, uh, 22 year old being a second lieutenant, your kind of adventure was different to now. And I think that's really represented 
that your favorite deployment was kind of that leadership role behind the scenes kind of thing that was that was interesting to hear. Um, is that do you think that comes with maturity as well, where when you uh, become a second lieutenant, your kind of ideas of leadership and what your goal is changes as you kind of go up the ranks and your responsibilities shift? Yes, I, I think that uh, my expectations shifted uh, exponentially. And what made it easy to to lubricate that shift was when I finally accepted that I, I'm only going to do like maybe 10 to 20% of all the fun stuff that I thought I was going to do when I was younger. And once I accepted my my role in the grand scheme of things, it, it was much, I got a lot more satisfaction at that point. So what's really cool about this you know, the, having the opportunity to have you on, sir, is that you were right there. You know the, actually, I'm, I'm going to preface this with what I'm trying to say. So a little earlier, a couple of years ago, the Air Force was trying to resign the, to retire the A-10. They said it was, you know, an expensive platform. It didn't, you know, it was slow, costly, and didn't do the, job quite as well as the incoming F-35s can. And you have had experience with both air airframes, I'm assuming, you know, having the A-10 right there and the F-35. What can you say to their capabilities, you know, if you had to make that decision again, would you keep the A-10s with the upgrades or would you completely scratch them let the F-35s do their thing? Yeah, I guess to, to take a step back, at the time when the idea of retiring the A-10 was on the table, I mean, no one actually wanted to retire the A-10. And essentially, we, we just had a series of bad options to choose from. And re- retiring the A-10 was the least bad option that General Welsh at the time had to choose from. And it really just came down to money. And I, I'd say, like, a, as a JTAC, the A-10 is probably the most response. Most, most of the time, it's the most responsive aircraft that's going to be available to us. But again, it really depends on the situation. I've been, I've seen scenarios where an MQ-9 was more responsive than an A-10. I've seen, I've seen scenarios where an F-16 was more responsive than an A-10. Uh, but in terms of who's dedicated to the cast mission, uh, who has the most water time, who has the most SA on the battlefield, I'd say the A-10 is typically the most reliable friend of JTACs. There are plenty of situations where a an F-16 might be more preferable depending on the level of threat we're dealing with. And there are situations where an F-35 is going to be the best asset uh, to provide that joint force commander. Um, and I do see the, the F-35 being a little bit more useful in an AI role, like air addiction, as opposed to a cast role. But if we ever go into a peer-to-peer fight, I guarantee the F-35 is going to be used sooner than the A-10, depending on the phase of war. That makes sense. So you've seen the entire situation. Um, do you mind if we could go through some scenarios really quick? So, you know, you would, you know, explain to us a scenario where the A-10 would be the best, where the F-35 would be the best, where the MQ-9 would be the best, you know, and just kind of using um, your training to, and actually follow-up question, I just thought of this right now. When, when you're on the ground calling these things, do you have the option to, um, request certain aircraft, like let's say at the nearby base, they have like A-10s, F-16s, MQ-9s. Are you, do you, are you the one that says, yeah, we have this situation here. We need, we have this scenario. We need the MQ-9 or the A-10 or, you know, et cetera. Yep. So one thing that we preach pretty much from the beginning of our, our training is that we request effects. We don't request specific assets. I mean, we don't request specific pilots to fly for us. But there are different ways that I could tailor that request to make sure that I'm getting uh, my desired ass- asset. Like I, when I submit that pre-planned request, I can change up some of the verbiage just to make sure that I am going to get someone who can loiter around for a specific amount of time, has 30 mic mic, um, is maybe FACA qualified, and that will probably get me an A-10 if I put in that exact verbiage. But in terms of being able to choose what asset is going to be supporting me all the time, no. There are plenty of times when I did not get what I wanted or plenty of times when I didn't even get anything at all. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Uh, do you think you could go through a scenario with us? Uh, you know, just actually you could go through one of your training missions where uh, 
you know, what exactly you would do if you were in a situation where, I don't know, maybe there's, you know, enemies to your right or, you know, a couple miles away. And what do you, I, I, I just, like I said, I'm not very well versed in what the TACP does. So if you could just run through a typical mission in your day, that, that'd be great. Yeah, so I'll provide uh, I'll provide two scenarios. One was in training, and one was uh, during deployment. While I was going through MQT, I was on a Cast TUI in Gila Bend, Arizona, and I had a flight of two A10s on station, as well as a flight of two F35s. And the F35s were still uh, kind of in their infancy stage. Uh, so when it came to conducting Cast with JTACs, they still had uh, several limitations that that were precluding them from demonstrating their full capabilities with us. So whenever I had a, whenever my instructor nominated a target and I could choose whether I'm going to have the A-10s or the F-35s prosecute that target, uh, just by virtue of being a more responsive aircraft that can fly low and slow, uh, the A-10 was the more, it, it was the better option for me to prosecute that target with more so than F-35. The F-35 had been, um, if it had been a little bit more capable at the time, or if it had a little bit more SA on the battlefield, then I might have used it more often. But in none of those cases, was F-35 the preferable delivery method to prosecute that target? And there are plenty of other scenarios where that F-35 might be useful. Like if we're going after a target within a, a non-permissive environment, but if we're going after some significant uh, surface-to-air threats, then I would probably choose the F-35 over the A-10 in that case. And then the second scenario where I, I bring up is during deployment, we had, I, I was in a, a talk, so a tactical operations center. So I was not on the ground for this. Um, and I was like 50 plus miles away from any danger within that talk. Um, but we were looking at an individual that we wanted to target and he was at a checkpoint. Um, and I had an MQ-1 on station and those are still back in inventory. We also had a B1 bone on station as well, holding like maybe 20 nautical miles away from his target. Um, and just based on based on the commander's desired effect against this individual, we, we didn't want to burn the target. Um, so bringing in the B1 probably would have generated a lot of noise and it probably would have spooked the rest of the population if we had brought that in. Plus, it was only carrying like 500 plus pound bombs within its uh, SEL. Uh, whereas that MQ1 is carrying Hellfire, and that was the that was the right munition for that specific target. That's uh, interesting. I'm also curious. Now you always communicate with Air, Air Force aircraft, but I was wondering uh, if you also communicate with like the AH1 or the AH64 Apache. Like, uh, do those do the other branches have other designated communication with those, or if an Apache's in the area? and you're in charge of that, do you also communicate with them or no? Yep, so we control Apaches um, all the time. I haven't worked with uh, H1s in quite some time. I mean, but we also work with various fixed-wing aircraft from the other services too. Like I've controlled Navy F-18s and Marine F-18s as well. But all all those assets that we just aimed off, they're all well-versed in close air support uh, procedures. Uh, They might have like various techniques like we mentioned earlier, um, but they, they all understand the cast mission. So we we usually like to hit this topic uh, eventually during the the episode here. But let's talk. Let's take this back to leadership. You know, everything we do here in this ROTC detachment is centered around leadership. And you know, you are familiar with everything we do because you went through the academy. You know what we're doing and. What is your advice, you know, for incoming second lieutenants from someone with your experience? What's your advice for us? I'd say my, my biggest advice is to grasp after two things. Uh, one of them is aptitude. Uh, so make sure that you're putting yourself in the best position to, to be capable of learning, um, to, to be capable of taking on those higher tasks. Um, and second, uh, approach everything with humility, especially intellectual humility, uh, recognizing that you don't know everything and you have a lot to learn. Um, and if you can do those two things, just having, yeah, having that aptitude and having that humility, um, that, that will, I think that will garner the respect of a lot of people that you're going to work with. And it'll show them that you're trying to become the best lieutenant you can be. 
about it. So I think that that's that's a really interesting perspective because I think so many times we're told not to go into something as a second lieutenant, or maybe we won't even get the respect because we're we're brand new. How how was when you when you got into a position of being a second lieutenant tech P officer, how how difficult was it to integrate into your um, uh, sorry if I'm not using the right lingo like uh, platoon or squadron and and how were you able to kind of gain the respect of the peers especially somebody as like a a, a TACP enlisted personnel who who's been doing the game for eight to ten years or something like that how how were you able to kind of say hey this is me um, I'm a second lieutenant and uh, I I know I don't know everything but I'm also a second lieutenant officer. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Yeah, so when I showed up to my first duty station at Fort Carson, um, not only was I a brand new second lieutenant, I wasn't even a graduate of the Taffy Schoolhouse at the time. Um, so I was I was starting from square zero, and I had zero respect in my flight and the rest of the squadron going into it. So I think even before I went to the schoolhouse, just training with the guys, like working out with them, and uh, just picking their brains about uh, various JTAC questions, that, that showed them that I'm, I'm at least interested in trying to do what you're doing. And, and I'm demonstrating that I, I value your expertise and your opinion within this career field and that I have a lot to learn from you. Eventually, I, I came back uh, from the schoolhouse with my beret. Um, so I went from zero respect to like maybe half a point of respect. Um, and then eventually, I, I progressed in my training a little, a little bit. And once I got uh, JTAC MQT complete, um, that was a pretty good feeling. And that's when I had the guys that started to look up to me as, as a leader before then. I think even just like passing that initial eval, um, that, that that was a big milestone for me. Um, then coming back from my first deployment, um, I'd say that was, that that's where I gained a lot of validation, at least for myself. That's also where I gained some credibility via that experience. Um, so that's like, let's see, I came back from my first deployment like over three years after I commissioned. So that's a long time to, to gain respect. Um, and there's a saying that it takes forever to, to gain respect or to earn respect, and it only takes a second to lose it. And unfortunately, I've seen plenty of people lose that respect instantaneously, um, even after they've worked so hard to gain it from their teammates. Um, so one thing that I would footstomp is hey, make sure you not only earn that respect, but you're earning it every day. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you, you brought that up because it does remind me of, you know, Max, you know, we hear this all the time. You know, when you go into the forces, you're going to be um, second lieutenant and you're going to be, you know, taking care of people that are like 30, 35. So how do you get up to that? How do you get them to start trusting you and letting them know that you're here for them to take care of them? So I'm actually really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting where you have different people coming from different backgrounds. Uh, like we had a F-16 pilot in and his perspective of leadership is completely different to Captain Chris's and just being able to hear their perspectives and, and rising up through the ranks of the Air Force is definitely interesting. Um, just a follow-up. Now, when you say lose trust, um, especially in a high-pressure situation as being a TACP, how, is it easy for, let's say, a second lieutenant um, works hard through the training, but he gets to his squadron or flight, and if that kind of like com camaraderie kind of doesn't mix well can they revoke his uh career and say you just don't get along well with these people or maybe even move you or if you're not up to standard for the air force leadership they'll remove you from the career completely is that a possibility yes that that is a very real possibility and we have a saying hey you earn your beret every day um and i have seen uh officers within special warfare career fields be forced to cross train in something else uh, whether it's via administrative action or what I consider probably the more painful way is when your peers um, kind of host an intervention for you. And they say, hey, man, you're just not cutting it. And as your peers, as your fellow 19 Zulu officers, we're asking you to leave the career field. I've seen that happen before, and it does happen. Um, and that, that's kind of a heartbreaking thing for, for that to happen to anyone. But if you're not making the cut or if we think that you're underperforming consistently, then we will ask you to leave. Wow. Can you, can you provide some more context to that? I'm sure, you know, obviously no names, but like what would someone have to do to warrant that kind of intervention? 
Yep. So we, uh, in one of the cases, this guy wasn't able to pass an eval, um, and he was given multiple opportunities to pass the eval, but he wasn't able to to meet the basic standard that we would expect from an A1C or a senior airman. If you can't meet that same standard as an officer, I, I don't think you're going to have any credibility or any any ability at all uh, to lead uh, these type of airmen. So just not being able to meet the standard, that'll get people either kicked out or asked to leave. Uh, we also had an individual whose personality just didn't mesh well with the rest of the team. That doesn't mean that you're going to share all the same interests, you're going to talk the same, you're going to hang out at the same bars, but this person's personality was just so antithetical to the rest of the team um, that he was not effective. Um, so he actually left after, after we introduced the idea of leaving to him. Okay, so, you know, the person you're talking about, they did everything right. They went through the entire course. They trained hard. But still, at the end of the day, you know, you just got to, it's, it's that attitude that got him that really ended the career for him. Yeah, it was a combination of attitude um, and personality. Okay, gotcha. Um, sorry to interrupt, Daniel, but also, could that be also maybe uh, backwards like into a positive thing, like let's say you have a tacky officer who might be struggling or even enlisted personnel, but if their attitude and their kind of warrior ethos is in the right mindset, would they get any kind of more support than versus somebody uh, who didn't have that mindset? Like if, if, do they get anything, like, does that make sense? Is that person uh, more likely to pass if they have that right attitude? I think when we're looking at, when we're looking at someone that's struggling, like maybe during a training review board or whatnot, we we tend to consider rehabilitative methods. You know, we also think about uh, that person's trainability. Like, is he likely to acknowledge that he has some shortfalls? Is he going to be receptive to feedback? Does he take criticism well? And is he likely to show improvement over time? Um, and a lot of our our assessments as we answer those questions are, is going to come down to that person's attitude, uh, the the type of ethos that he demonstrates to us. So. When we're, when we're doing those reviews, we look at the totality of the person. We're never looking at just one aspect of that person's life. Uh, we're looking about how his, how his whole person is likely to succeed or not succeed in the career field uh, are very rare. Um, it doesn't happen all the time. It's not something I'm thinking about every week. Uh, but I illuminate that just to emphasize the point that just because you're in the career field doesn't mean you're going to stay uh, the entire time. That makes sense. It definitely does. But in that last statement, you know, you said he a lot, the, the pronoun he. So have there been, you know, any women in this career field? Yes, there have been four so far. Um, and we have two remaining right now. Um, they've made some good contributions to the career field. Um, and what I can say is that they, they met the same standard as us. They got selected at phase two. Uh, they uh, they were liked by their peers at phase two, passed the schoolhouse, passed JTAC MQT, um, and did some good things downrange. So there are yeah there are women in the tech career field. That is inspiring. So so there's no difference in the uh, the selectability between that. You know you got to meet all the same standards. There's no um, the are the physical standards the same? Everything's the same. Yep, the physical standards are the same. So at the beginning of the pipeline, you're expected to pass the past, the physical abilities and stamina test. Um, and we recently incorporated a new special warfare airman tier two test, which consists of uh, five components. So it's on top of, it's in, it's uh, a little bit more um, stressful than your typical Air Force PT test. It includes things like deadlifts, uh, shuttle runs, um, that kind of stuff, like very functional exercises. And we don't divide up the grades between men and women or even by age difference because the expectation is that, hey, regardless of your age, you could very well find yourself in a situation that requires you to be able to move 225 pounds, 30 yards, that kind of thing. That is inspiring. That, that really is. That is cool. Um, so moving on to kind of the more in-depth about yourself and, you know, your journey as a TACP officer, uh, what are some really exciting experiences as uh, attack the officer, just being a member of the Air Force in general that has made the moments where you're kind of difficult late nights or long days worth it in the end. 
and what what experiences you have in that where you're like, wow, there's 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 no other job or career like this. And I just want to keep at it and keep going. I think uh, in terms of in terms of events that inspire me to to keep going, um, I'd say like even during during my last deployment when we were prosecuting targets uh, like in Raqqa and Abu Kamal, um, so like some of the last strongholds that ISIS held, um, just just knowing that the the planning that was going into all those operations and the the execution phase was offering uh, the people of Syria and Iraq a, a better chance at living a life free from ISIS's reign. Um, that, that, that was inspiring to me. Um, I, I just like the idea of uh, trying to help the less fortunate. Um, so that kept me pretty motivated. And even though like, we had some long nights and sometimes like uncomfortable uh, conversations and situations, it was all worth it to me just knowing that we're helping out people in the long run. How many times have you deployed overseas? And so I've got uh, two overseas deployments. And I, I, I consider that like kind of, that's kind of on the low end compared to a lot of other TAPI officers. There are plenty of dudes who have like 10 plus deployments. And here I am sitting at two. Then <laughs> um, I've also done a short tour in Korea, which lasted 15 months. Got it. And, and from those deployments, do you have any stories you'd like to tell? You know, anything that would be a highlight of those deployments? Yeah, we were targeting, um, we were targeting an individual that we found at a checkpoint. Um, and we had an MQ-9 on station. Um, and uh, we determined that prosecuting, prosecuting this target was well within the JFC's intent. Um, we determined that uh, we were meeting all the requirements that were outlined in, in our ROEs at the time. Um, so we decided to use one Hellfire from this MQ-9 uh, to kill this individual. Um, and whenever, whenever any weapon comes off a plane, I like to... I like to count down uh, the time of flight. I mean, I know when it's going to impact. Even if I'm, even if I'm not looking down my watch, uh, mentally inside my head, I'm counting down just so that I know when to expect that explosion. And the thing with Hellfires and a lot of laser-guided weapons is that you can actually change the aim point um, mid-flight. Um, there was one individual who was probably like three or four feet tall, so probably a child, who walked into the window and we knew that he was entering that impact zone. Um, and when there's like seven seconds remaining, like I was literally thinking to myself, do we go ahead and kill this? Uh, do we go ahead and kill this individual and accept the possibility that this child is going to die? Or are we going to shift cold, definitely lose this individual, and we might not even find him again, and that individual might go off um, and attack coalition forces in the future. Um, so just being able to make that decision and think of all those alternate outcomes that could occur. Um, that was, that, that, that was kind of an intense uh, scenario for me as a, as a young tenant, but that, that's the type of tough decision that I didn't think I would actually have to make. Um, that I found myself in that crappy situation uh, where you're determining um, an outcome that is not going to be ideal. That is definitely intense. That seems like it's, you know, straight out of a movie. And in those moments where you have to decide where you kind of become the decider of, of life and death what has your training provided for you what does the i think it's the geneva convention against like the rules of engagement you know are, are all these things swimming through your head at that moment yeah i think may, maybe maybe not overtly but very subtly uh, I was thinking about um, all the possible outcomes within like three to four seconds, but I I, I was not thinking about things like oh, does RB zero zero six or zero zero nine apply here? Like that's not what was going through my head. I, I was more thinking, hey, what do I do in the situation, and what's the what's the best possible outcome, and what's the, what's the most likely outcome, and how can I achieve that? Um, that's all within the span of a few seconds. So just being able to process that information and being able to rely on your training and determining values for each of those uh, different outcomes. Um, that's what was going through my head at the time. Uh, may I ask what, how that situation ended? Yeah, so in that situation, um, just based on who the individual was, uh, I determined that killing him was not worth accepting the risk to that child. I and mean, I was also confident that, that some coalition forces that were maybe a quarter mile away would be able to find him if we didn't hit him. So I had the I had that MQ9 sensor operator 
um, shift cold, so he changed his aim point last minute. The Hellfire impacted maybe 50 meters away from the intended target. Um, both the intended target and that child like fell down like, probably from, from the blast, uh, but they both walked away, or they both ran away, and we eventually got the guy um, another day. And I, I think the, the big thing to highlight from that story is that even as a, as a young officer, you're going to have to make some influential decisions, and some people might suffer as a result of that. And sometimes you only have bad options to keep them. So going back to that story, you as, as a young leader, a young lieutenant, when you have to make those tough decisions, what kind of perspective or what kind of mindset does a, a person have to have to be in your position of leadership? Because there's a lot of second lieutenants who are in your position who have to make those types of decisions. And what kind of mentality do you have to have to be able to be in those high pressure situations and make a decision that you're confident with? I'd say you know, your decision-making psyche has to be one of jurisprudence, meaning you're able to take complex issues. You're able to identify multiple, multiple perspectives within an issue and identify the merits within each of those perspectives. And once you're able to do that and you realize that hey, you're, you're looking at a, a very wide mixture of different alternatives to, to explain certain phenomena, um, and now you just have to make a decision from that. Once you realize, well, once you realize that, uh, then you can make some better decisions. That that was a really garbled way of me to say that. So. <laughs> no, for sure, it's uh, it's it's interesting. But uh, to line up the conversation, I just have to ask: when you're not on a deployment and you're not in these kind of high leadership roles, what are you doing for fun? Like, do you like Netflix? Do you do you like going for a jog what what do you do for fun and relieve stress throughout the week when you're when you're not in doing your career i think we're trying to ask is if you're human or if you're <laughs> just <not. laughs> uh, so so pre-covid i was going at it um i was going skiing whenever i could get the chance in the winter going hiking in the summer camping shooting axe throwing with friends that kind of thing during covid so here in El Paso, like we're not even allowed to go to other people's houses if we're not in the same family. So I spent a lot of time just like walking my dog, riding with my dog, <laughs> pretty much like being a stay-at-home dog owner uh, whenever I get the chance. I've really gotten into, so I have this habit of whenever I'm browsing through Netflix, I don't, I don't uh, notice popular TV shows until like maybe two to three years after they become popular. Um, so I've really been, been into Cobra Kai lately. It's an awesome show. <laughs> um, God. I was half expecting you to say Tiger King. I was if, yeah. if I was a Ben man and I had any money yeah. to my name, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> I would have said yeah, Tiger, Tiger King. King was definitely a hit. But um, uh, so is it tough for you when you when you want to like if like for me a big kick is I like these like war movies and they're fun. Is it hard to look, watch those because you know they're kind of like Hollywood like acting, you know, like, it, oh, that's not how it works. Like when you go back and you look at that Transformers movie and you're like, oh yeah, that attack was so cool. I want to do that. And you look back and you're like, wait a minute, that's not what attack B does. Like, does that change your perspective? <laughs> I think in, in a lot of regards, it makes, uh, it makes war movies a little bit more entertaining. That's like every one of us makes fun of everyone. And we're constantly throwing shade at the characters, some of the decisions they make, or like their significant others. We're constantly making fun of every other character in these movies. And I think uh, just by virtue of like, sharing some of those experiences with what the characters of those movies are going through, it makes it a little bit easier for us to resonate uh, with, with their situation. Um, and I do want to clarify, so in Transformers, um, I think the actor is Tyrese Gibson. So he, he is JTAC qualified, but he's actually a combat controller. It's not TAC-P. That's the first time I got to see a JTAC uh, do the cast mission, even though it's in Hollywood. I just want to clarify that point. Yeah, thanks. That, so um, do you have any movies you want to out right now of like where you're like, oh man, that's that's hard to watch or you you enjoy or something like that? Any of those? I think a good kill um, is like really, it's really difficult to watch. Probably like one of the most cringeworthy military movies I can think of. It's about an MQ-9 pilot at Creech. That, that's pretty painful to watch. And I think the, the most painful part of that movie is towards the end where the A1C sensor operator decides to resign from her position. And as she's telling this major, who's the pilot she's been working with, that she's resigning, she takes off her wings and she says, hey, sir, I may be an airman, but I am first class. 
then she leaves her number with him. I was like, oh, this is so bad. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I watched that movie. I watched that movie when it came on Netflix and I was going to bring it up and I'm so glad you did because I watched Good Kill and I was going to see if you knew anything about it, but it just never brought up. So glad to know. So you're just, that's not the move then. You don't like a uh, Good is Kill it, then. What? Is it cringy no. because it's like bad? Like every move is like, uh, or is it like, or is it just a bad movie because it's it's like emotionally hard to watch? No, it, it's bad because like every there isn't much of a redeeming quality behind the movie. <laughs> uh, I think the, the the totality of that movie, the character development, um, every decision that they make, it's everything they say. Um, that that's what makes it cringeworthy for me. In your opinion, it's not the movie is nothing like the real life at all. Like it's just not even close. None none of communication. Is related at all? You can find kernels. You can find some kernels of realism within that movie, um, but a lot of the banter and a lot of the techniques that they that they demonstrate uh, just don't match with reality. Um, but on the opposite side, a movie that I think is highly underrated is *Eye in the Sky* uh, with Helen Mirren and the dude who plays uh, Professor Snape from *Harry Potter*. Uh, both those people are in it. Um, and with good, I'm sorry, with Eye in the Sky, the reason I think why it's an underrated movie is that it highlights a lot of the ethical implications that decision makers might find themselves in charge of. Um, and a lot of those hard decisions that we talked about previously. And what, what I do want to acknowledge with Eye in the Sky is that it, it is highly sensationalized because it is Hollywood. Um, and the situations that they find themselves in are, they're, they're pretty extreme. And I've never seen that type of scenario play out in its totality. I've probably seen like most of the individual events play out over various days. Uh, but this one specific mission that they're conducting in Eye in the Sky is pretty ridiculous. But again, the reason it's a good movie is because it highlights a lot of ethical dilemmas. So I highly recommend that. Yeah, we got yeah, some yeah. homework to do. We got to watch this movie. I'm looking it up right now. It's got uh, Alan Rickman in it, who's, of course, Snape. And then we got uh, the dude from Breaking Bad. What was his name? Jesse? I think it was Jesse. We got him in there too. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely watching this movie tonight. I'll have to watch it tonight as well. And we'll have to give our movie review next podcast episode because uh it, it's recommended by Attack P Officer. So we new have segment? to we got a new segment, new segment. movie reviews. <laughs> movie reviews, definitely, no doubt. And uh um I think I think it's so interesting how um how just I, movies, I know we're kind of on a random topic, but the the good kill, I watched that like a year ago and I was wondering if it was so accurate, but I'm, I'm glad you clarified that, that just the communication's bad. So I in the sky is the way to go and we'll do it. So we need to follow up. So, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm about to move on right now. Okay. So Casamina's um, going to roast me. Oh yeah. <laughs> we just keep doing movies. So, so in these movies, the MQ nine Reapers kind of like the main uh, airframe that is utilized would use and we we brought up how the A10 and the F35 were kind of you know go to aircraft uh, if you will how you know effective is the MQ9 Reaper in its mission of being a um close air support airframe sorry i'm butchering this question but do you, do you think that that's the way of the future or will there always be room for pilot uh, sit in aircraft um, I think there, there's always going to be room for manned aircraft. There's going there will be plenty of contingencies where we need a, a variety of aircraft to be employed. Um, and I think uh, in the past 21 or 20 years or so, fighting coin or counterinsurgency in the Middle East, MQ1s and MQ9s have been uh, they've been a proven asset, and they've worked for what we needed from them. However, if we find ourselves in uh, like large-scale combat operations. I guarantee an MQ-9 isn't going to be as survivable as something that can move literally five times as faster. And I do want to clarify that even though we have used the MQ-9 for CAS, it's primarily an ISR asset. Um, so they're conducting um, a lot of uh, intel collection on various targets of interest. And then if it happens to be a good choice to get closer support, then we'll go ahead and employ it in that fashion. Uh, Captain Chris, when... You know, when you came home and you talked to your friends and your families about what you do, you what's the story that you tell the most often? So, you know, what's the one that really gives everyone the, the best perspective of what you do 
overseas in training and uh, all of that? And do you think you could share it with us? Yeah, that is a good question. I mean, typically I don't really talk about my job that much when I go see my my friends at home who, who aren't in the military. And I, I typically don't bring it up unless they bring it up. It's not like a, a matter of shame, embarrassment, or like I'm trying to uh, put on a persona of some really super cruel secret squirrel dude. Um, it's just that we typically don't bring it up in, in friendly conversation. But I think when I, when they do ask, like, hey, how's my job going? Or uh, what exactly do I do here? Uh, I tend, I guess in Lehman's terms, I just like to say, hey, I just talk on the radio to, at, at the tactical level. I, I just use a radio to talk to aircraft. I tell them what to shoot and what to bomb. And I think that's probably the easiest way to understand it. Is it difficult to kind of, you know, uh, like have those kind of conversations with friends or family of what you do uh, because maybe they don't understand it or, um, you know, not even being able to bring it up? Um, like, is, is those conversations difficult? I think it's it's difficult when they don't understand, when they don't have a, a good understanding of why the military exists or, or what the military's objectives are in certain parts of the world. Um, that's when they're less likely to understand my job. Um, if it is someone who comes from a military background or they're at least somewhat familiar with uh, some of the conflicts we've become a part of, then it's easier for them to understand. Um, and I think one of the challenges of uh, of explaining my job is I, I don't want to come off as the type of person who uh, just wants to tell girls at the bar, uh, like all the cool things I've done. I haven't done that many cool things, um, but just trying to avoid that perception of braggadociousness, um, that that's one thing that's hard to, uh, hard to navigate when I'm explaining my job. So what I'm hearing is that you're so cool that sometimes you have to stop yourself from saying how cool you are. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, my goal is not to make, I try really hard not to make myself sound cooler than I really am. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just messed around there. Um, we are approaching the end of this episode. And, you know, what we like to do usually while we end up is, uh, you know, knowing what you know now, everything you've gone through in high school, you want to do something better with your life. Saw an awesome Decepticons movie, thought, hey, I want to be a JTAC. No, it's not exactly like that. But then you go to the Air Force Academy, meet a bunch of awesome, like-minded people, train hard, sweat hard, become brothers. And then you go to get selected to go to phase two. And as you go through the pipeline, you know, you're learning everything about being a tactical air control party officer. And, you know, from there, you go on to your deployments and your trainings. And knowing what you know now, would you change anything? Or what advice would you give yourself? I think what I would have told my younger self is don't take yourself so seriously because you're, you're not as cool as you think you are. Um, and you're not as exceptional as you think you are. Um, and, and I wish I had told myself that more deliberately uh, when I was younger. Um, I think I, I probably would have enjoyed life a little bit more if I had done that. I mean, not, that's not to say I didn't enjoy life, but I think my level of enjoyment would have been higher at the time. Um, and second, I think I would also tell myself, hey, make sure to take care of yourself. 30 years old now, but I feel like I'm 55. <laughs> so I've had a few recurring injuries. Um, like I developed arthritis in my left shoulder, which I didn't know was possible at my age. Oh, what? I've, had a, I've torn a few muscles, torn, torn a labrum. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from this overuse or like not paying attention to what my body was trying to tell me. Um, so yeah, just don't take yourself so seriously and take care of yourself. That's what I tell myself. All right. Thanks. That's unfortunate, but, uh, words of wisdom. So to sum this up, thank you so much, Captain Chris, for being here. Um, I know that certain things might get cut out in this episode. And if you're hearing this now, then I'm sorry you didn't get to hear the same stories we did if they did get cut out. Um, it Daniel, was a lot cooler. Always, yeah, it's a lot good, okay. uh, cooler. But we we had a lot of fun nevertheless, and it was a great opportunity to meet somebody in the Air Force and specifically the TACP role. Um, Daniel, do you have any last words before we end this podcast, before I do the closing? Uh, no, except thank you, sir, for coming on. It's been an honor and a pleasure this has definitely been, to date, probably my favorite, most favorite interview 
yet. So, you know, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you, learn about your life, get that perspective. And uh, I think it's going to change a lot of people's world. So thank you for that, sir. No, no problem. And to sum it up, so his words of wisdom, get some sleep and don't take yourself so seriously because you're not so serious. As what, what would the Joker say, you know, in that Batman scene? Why so serious? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry for joking around. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Daniel's laughing me over at the, we're looking at the Zoom. He's laughing. How can I not? How can I not laugh at you? Listen to yourself. <laughs> hey. Okay, so we're going to sum it up now. We're having too much fun. So please give this uh, Spotify podcast a like if you enjoyed it and stay tuned for our next episode.